This is Gregory Bloom. Welcome to Food Chat. Food Chat is all about reconnecting you to your food. We're on every Wednesday here at 1230 on KLZ 560. So join us for your lunch hour or you can listen to any of our past shows by going to GregoryBloom.com and checking out our podcast there. You can also send any questions or comments uh, to my website, GregoryBloom.com or FoodChat.us. Food Chat's all about reconnecting you to your food. Today, I am so pleased to have Dr. Temple Granton on our show to talk to us about her life's work, working with animals raised for meat production, including beef, dairy, poultry, and pigs. I've known Dr. Temple Granton for many years because of my work uh, in the beef industry. If you're not familiar with Dr. Temple Grandin, um, I'd encourage you to see the movie about her life that was produced by HBO and is available on Amazon Prime. It's called Temple Grandin, so pretty easy. Uh, Temple Grandin is the author of many books, some about raising animals, I've read all those, some about autism, I've read one of those, and some about animal behavior, and I've also read those. Uh, they're all great books. So uh, welcome, Dr. Temple Grandin, to our show today. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, Dr. Grandin, for those who haven't seen the movie about your life and may not be familiar with your work in the meat industry, uh, tell us about how you got started in that line of work. Well, I got started because I visited my aunt's ranch out in the West, and this brings up a really important thing. I'm an Easterner, and uh, students get interested in things they get exposed to, so I got exposed to Western uh, cattle industry, so I got interested. And in some of my very first work, I uh, looked at what cattle were seeing when they were going to a shoot, and nobody thought to look at that before, because I'm an extreme visual thinker, and that's shown very nicely in the HBO movie, right. and I didn't know that other people thought verbally. And cattle handling back in the 70s when I started was really bad. Yeah, it was really bad. I'm sure you've seen a lot of teachers. What are, in, in your career working with, with cattle in particular, we'll go to pigs and poultry next, but what, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in your career in regards to the handling of cattle for, for beef production? Oh, cattle handling has greatly improved. Oh, it's way, way better than it used to be. No comparison. I mean, the Beef Quality Assurance has been doing all kinds of low-stress handling workshops. Cattle handling is not perfect, but compared to 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, it is greatly improved. Yeah, and I've seen, I've been, um, uh, you know, I got to go to a couple of your um your classes up at CSU out at Ardeck where you where you teach your class and I, I've seen how you uh, teach the students there and others you know how to how to handle cattle and you know I grew up on a farm and uh, you know we but we back then we didn't know any different really I, I I just plead ignorance but we were still using the the shockers you know we're trying to shock them onto the trailers and stuff and they really don't do that anymore and and they're not supposed to right well, I'm not going to say electric prods have not been banned, but uh, their use has been uh, greatly reduced. One of the things I've learned about cattle handling is you always have to keep reminding people of basics. Calm down. Don't be yelling and screaming at animals. Because once they get really excited, it takes half an hour for them to fully calm down. So the first step is for handlers to be calmer. Right, and I've certainly seen that. And also, you know, I didn't know, Dr. Grandin, that you can actually uh, handle cattle with uh, a pole and a, and a bag. You know, I had no idea when I was a kid you could do that. But that's what I see very commonly used now is they're bringing the cattle off the trucks and, and getting them lined up to go into the plants. Is that, is that, is that, was that your idea? or? Well, I you know, was one of the people that got that started. 
And one of the things that people need to not be doing is constantly waving driving tools. You know, today at a meatpacking plant, uh, cattle are usually unloaded, no electric prods, open the door on the trailer, and, and they most of the time they just walk off. Right, right. And I've seen all the work that has been done uh, that you implemented with, you know, the chutes and not scaring the cattle because they can see through the fence and there could just be a jacket hanging on the fence on the inside, but that scares them because there's a shadow there or something. So, um, Oh, they're really, really scared of shadows. I'm now getting back out in the field. I went out to one plant, big equipment startup, and at 10 o'clock in the morning, everything was working fine. In the late afternoon, there was a shadow that formed right in the middle of the cattle handling facility, kind of looked like a giant spider, and the cattle refused to walk over it. And to fix the problem, they had to build a roof over the, over the crowd pen to block the shadow. Because in a meat plant, they don't have time to learn that that shadow's not going to hurt them. In a dairy, that cows would just learn to walk over it. Uh, just a shadow changing with the time of day can cause a problem in a facility where you're handling them only a few times a year on a ranch. Right, and I, you know, I, I don't know how cattle see. Maybe you could explain that. But are they afraid of shadows because they can't see depth? Like if there's a shadow on the ground, they don't know that that's that's not a that's not a step or a fall. It's just it's just dark. Well, it, it they have to put their head down to see depth, and so the big mistake that people make is when the cattle put their head down people push them. What you need to do is wait until the cattle has looked, the lead animal has looked at the shadow, brought the head back up, and then you can push them. And one of my students, Dennis Wilson, just finished up a study where he looked at how shadows changed with the time of day or whether the sun was really bright, and it affected handling at a, at a small meatpacking plant. And when there were sharp shadows, uh, the cattle were harder to move, and people were more likely to yell or use the electric prod. Right, right. I'm I'm less familiar with your work with pigs and chickens just because I've been on the beef side my whole career. But can you tell us a little bit about just um, some things you've seen in the in the pig? Any any changes in the in, in handling pigs over the years? Oh, people have gotten a whole lot better on handling pigs too. And one of the secrets to loading a truck with uh, market weight pigs is to move small groups. Uh, good handling is going to take more walking. Now, one of the questions that you sent me in the text. Um, discussed what still needs to be changed. Right. The animal handling has gotten really better. But just as animal handling got really better, we've been making animals more and more productive, more and more meat, and we've had increasing problems with lameness. Right. And some of it is structural leg conformation in both cattle and in pigs. And it's important for producers to breed animals to have good, correct feet and legs, not too straight and not walking around on the dew claws. Uh, that's extremely important. Um, because you have to have an animal that you can handle, and some of these heavy cattle have gotten lame. And there's a big difference between feed yards. I mean, some feed yards have a problem with this, and, there's, and some have no problem at all. Right. Yeah, and I've seen that, too, as I've visited feed yards. And for those that aren't, you know, I think most of the people listening to this show have never been to a feed yard. They've never been to a, a slaughter plant where they've seen the cattle be loaded or unloaded, or, or the pigs, uh, or they've probably never been to a poultry house either so um uh you know with with pigs you know um can you kind of explain you like since we haven't i haven't seen much of that just how that process works is it just like cattle where they're kind of loaded and unloaded basically yeah they're unloaded out of trucks very very similar and the big question i'm always getting asked is do the animals know they're going to get slaughtered um if you look at stress hormone in cattle cortisol hormone it's the same at a slaughterhouse as it is out on a ranch being handled it will range from high to low, depending upon uh, how good the handling is, but it's the same range. 
And uh, recently, when I went to this equipment startup, uh, this big shadow I called the spider monster that appeared at, uh, you know, in the afternoon, uh, these Angus cattle decided they weren't going to walk over this, and uh, uh, they weren't afraid of slaughter. They were afraid of a shadow that looked like a spider. Yeah, yeah. Well, I grew up on a farm raising animals, too, and I never saw in my animal, they wanted... My pigs wanted food and water and shade, and they wanted mud. They wanted to be cool, and they liked to be around each other. But I didn't sense, come slaughter day, and we slaughtered all of our own pigs, I didn't sense they had this sense of doom that, that no, something was going to go down that day. They had no idea. So no, you, no. You, they, they, have, they have no idea. They have no idea. So people don't, sometimes we kind of humanize human emotions and put those on animals and think that, that animals think like we do, but they really don't. You have a book about that, actually. I no, think. actually, you might be interested in reading my book, um, Animals in Translation, where I talk about how visual thinking has helped me work with animals. I've also got a number of books on cattle handling, Temple Grandin's Guide to Working with Farm Animals, and then this fall, coming out with a new book on visual thinking. Because some people are visual thinkers like me who think in pictures. Other people think in more mathematical patterns. And then there's people that think in words, and I'm an extreme visual thinker, which is going to make me good at designing equipment, understanding animal behavior, art, um, and then other kind of people are much more mathematical. Right. Well, I would encourage everyone listening to, maybe if they have kids and their kids are off for summer break, to read those books. I've read all the books that you mentioned. And also, to get out to a farm, I was talking to a guy last week who's a vegan and I just talked to him about why he's a vegan and he said well I just don't like the way the animals are handled and I asked him have you ever been to a farm or to a dairy he didn't eat cheese either and he's never been to a dairy and I said you know you really should go visit a dairy because you'll see they're pretty happy there and I actually gave him the name of a dairy person to go and visit their farm but uh, maybe, maybe everyone's homework this summer could be uh, read one of Dr. Temple Grandin's books and get your kids out to a farm. Well I think one of the big problems we've got today is we've got kids growing up today totally removed from the world of the practical. They don't play outside, uh, just constantly staying on computers. I just read an article this morning about kids that just are on computers all the time and don't go outside having problems with nearsightedness and having to wear glasses the rest of their life. Uh, but I think that doing a lot of hands-on things uh, helps kids to problem-solve. Right, um, yeah. A lot of uh, students don't know how to problem-solve, so I've got some other books, um, Outdoor Scientists, that's to get kids outside observing, Calling All Minds, Childhood Experiments that I did with kites and with parachutes, and I'd spend hours tinkering with this stuff, and kids just aren't doing that today. Right. What, what would your advice be, you know, to parents who are fighting this battle of their kids on the smartphone or the tablet? I mean, how many, how many hours a day do you think it's healthy for kids to be, you know, playing a video game on their tablet or stuck inside? I mean, they've got to have life balance. They'll do some of that. But what, what is your advice to parents regarding that? Well, when TV, I'm old enough to remember when TV was invented. And uh, one hour a day during the week two hours a day on Saturday and Sunday, and then you need to get out and do, do some other things. And some of these kids are getting, you know, really addicted to video games, especially some of the kids with autism label or ADHD or dyslexic or some other label. And there's been some success now with getting them off of video games, getting them using tools, and as a young adult, getting out and fixing cars. And they find that the fixing cars is more interesting than the video games. You've got to replace it with something else. And I think one of the worst things our schools have done is taking out all the hands-on classes out. I would have hated school if I hadn't had sewing, woodworking, and art. 
Yeah, me too. I had wood shop in ninth grade in at, at Brighton, and uh, and when I grew up in Brighton, I just loved it. it. Was my favorite class, and of course that class is gone, and you can't take wood shop anymore. <laughs> it's too bad. But I think I think it's a big mistake, and and uh, we have a real shortage today of uh, people who can fix things, and that's going to be one of the things I'll be talking about in my new book. Uh, you can pre-order it right now. Visual thinking on Amazon. Just type in Temple Grandin, visual thinking. Great idea. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back, and we'll ask Dr. Temple Grandin a couple more questions. Today's show is brought to you by RanchFreshMeats.com. RanchFreshMeats.com is a Colorado family-owned company. My family owns it, and we bring the best meat from farms, ranches, and food plants that we've vetted out and know the production process personally. So we've done all the hard work for you, and we have a great selection of meats that will help you all summer along with some great grilling ideas. Like we have Wagyu flat irons right now that are just awesome. And we have our Beeler's Bratwurst, which are a summer staple for many. You should always have some Beeler's Brats. I'd encourage you to go to our website, ranchfreshmeats.com. Sign up for our weekly emails because we get buys on things and we pass the savings along to you. And as food is going up more and more expensive all the time, you want to save money. So we'll send you out an email once in a while with a great deal on something. So check out ranchfreshmeats.com. This is Gregory Bloom with Food Chat, and we're here today talking to Dr. Temple Grandin, a professor at Colorado State University, and we're talking about food production and specifically uh, Temple's work her life work actually working with um, improving the quality of animal handling and Dr. Grennan we've talked about cattle a little bit and pigs a little bit and you brought up the lameness issue and then I um, asked you a little bit about the unloading and loading of pigs because I haven't seen that but the reason that I asked you that question in regards to the lameness issue is because that's primarily where you'd see lameness is when the cattle or the pigs are walking on and off the trailers am I right? That's absolutely right in fact there's a lameness scoring system that my former student, Willie Callaway Edwards, worked on where you score them for lameness. A normal walks with a limp but keeps up with a herd of animals, um, walks mobile but does not keep up, and then almost down because you manage the things that you measure. And uh, one of the issues with lameness is uh, breeding. We've got to make sure that our breeding stock, both for cattle and pigs, have correct feet and legs. Yeah, and so people that may be not familiar with um, how animals are raised, you know, they're bred for efficiencies and gains, so they want to have those animals, you know, um, on the books as little as possible and still give them a good quality of life, of course. But, you know, you probably want your cattle in the feedlot less days rather than more days. But the problem with the, the advances that have been made genetically to make the animals more efficient and heavier, I mean, we're, we slaughter a lot less cattle we, in this country than That's we did right. in 1972, but we have a lot more beef. Well, how is that possible? Less animals, more beef. Well, the animals got bigger, but as Temple Grandin has pointed out before, and when I've heard her talk, is uh, we can't forget that they need to walk, <laughs> and, and well, they need the to have a good quality is, of life. Go ahead. The other thing that we have to do is what is the optimum level? Because you overselect for any trait in any animal, you're going to get into trouble. Look at bulldogs. You're selecting for an appearance trait. They can't breathe. They can't walk. They can't have their babies normally. And if you overselect for weight gain, then you get problems with lameness, say there's been some problems with heart failure. You want an efficient animal. But we've got to be looking at what's the optimum level, not the maximum. You see, and that's kind of a hard concept for, you know, for some people to, to understand. And that's true for any type of breeding, whether it's appearance, performance, or, you know, a, 
productivity such as meat. Great. Well, before I go to chickens, I just want to ask you, because most of our listeners will have pets and not chickens and not pigs and not cattle, but they have pets. So regarding the optimal level when you're selecting a pet, there's purebred pets. Some of these purebred pets, you know, they, they can hardly breathe. I know I looked at a thing like friend, I was trying to help a friend of mine get a dog on an airplane and I saw all the restrictions for certain kinds of dogs you can't take on the airplane because of their breathing problems. But, but uh, is, that, is, that, is that a common problem? Yes, it's a common problem with the color brachycephalic breeds, uh, bulldogs, uh, pugs, Boston Terriers, the ones that have the smashed-in face. And they keep selecting for that short smashed-in face until that animal can no longer breathe. That's what I call bad becoming normal. Um, no, and you, if you look at a bulldog from 1938, it's a much more functional dog. And they've just been changed so much over the years. You can look up this picture called Bulldog's Dilemma, what a bulldog looked like in 1938. And that's totally different than what it looks like now. We just went crazy selecting for traits like massive head. Right. You know, where do you stop on these things? Yeah, yeah. And we forget what you have to give up. Um, and, you know, the overall health of the animal, of course, if they can't breathe right. Right. So, yeah. hey, let's talk a little bit about poultry. So you've done a lot of work with... Uh, poultry over your career and both um, poultry, I mean uh, chickens and turkey, you know, most people have never been to a grow house. And one, one label claim that I see on meat all the time and uh, it makes me wonder is this label claim about uh, um, um, no cage, no cages, but are meat, are birds raised for meat, for, for, for you know, chicken, for fried chicken or whatever, how we're going to cook chicken? Is that, are those commonly raised in cages? No, they're absolutely not. They're raised in big sheds with wood shavings on the floor, and the little chicks are put in there in a great big shed. The broilers, what they call broilers, meat chickens, are not reared in cages. What's happening there, you're mixing up layers, your egg birds, with your meat birds. So, yeah, so chickens raised for meat production are typically called broilers, and those are differentiated from hens or raised for egg production. What about eggs? You've been in a lot of systems for egg production. Are, are chickens still commonly in a little tight um, cage when they're egg layers? Well, there's a lot of people moving away from that. There's a lot of different systems being developed, but the real small battery cages, they need to move away. I remember doing some consulting for McDonald's years ago and went into an egg layer house and the birds couldn't even stand in the normal walking position. So now they've got systems, there's a whole bunch of different systems where the birds have a lot more space and they can move around in the facility. I saw a documentary a few years ago, I think it was, I forget the name, I think it was um, Fast Food Nation Part 2, and they were showing chicken production and how the chickens get so big that they can't walk anymore. Um, is that still going on, or have they corrected some of that? Well, uh, 20 years ago, the problems with lameness and walking in broiler chickens was really bad. They've actually corrected some of that problem with the feet and the legs. But again, you can you, when you're raising a really big broiler, it's extremely efficient. But you have to do it absolutely right. You have some, if you do them absolutely right, the birds can be really heavy, six or seven pounds, and be fully mobile. You make one little mistake, then you're going to have downers and have, have problems. And you need to start with really good hatching eggs. And that goes back to your breeders. And your breeders have got to be healthy, and they've got to be raised right. And the boiler breeders, the hens that make the eggs for boiler chickens, they're in the group housing system, always have been. Do you tend to think it's um, a matter of trying to slow down the process just a little bit, or, or do you think that, does that really matter, is, is trying to correct some of these issues? 
Well, they, it, genetics is a big part of it. The leg now on a broiler is a tree trunk compared to what it used to be. And then you, you'll, you can adjust the feed. Um, but I've seen, you know, little heavy broilers that grew fast and they were absolutely fine. But then one little mistake gets made, then you have a problem. Um, they have to be raised absolutely right. And there's a, that, I can't emphasize that enough. But the problems with the legs, that has greatly improved compared to 20 years ago, right. 10 years ago. Right, right. Yeah, and I've seen that, too, on the few houses that I have visited, too. Hey, right now in the news, you know, we're speaking of, of poultry, this avian flu has been going around the world, and for a while, the U.S. kind of kept it at bay, but it's here now, and I think last I read, 40 or 44 states have it now. Um, how, how is that affecting the industry, for those that don't know about that? Well, it's been absolutely horrible, and it's a very severe strain. It's very, very um, contagious, very uh, deadly spread by migratory birds, and some migratory birds spread it and others don't. Canada geese don't get sick, but they can uh, spread it around, and it's been absolutely devastating, and hopefully they can develop a vaccine for it. Um, but it's a new strain of avian influenza, and, uh, you know, domestic chickens are, are very uh, sensi sensitive to it. This gets back to trade-offs. See, when you breed an animal... If I breed it just to put all of its energy into the economy, that's sort of like a national budget, the meat, then maybe I shortchange the military, which is the immune system. Maybe we're going to have to breed some strength back in. You see, there's always a price, and uh, hopefully they can develop a vaccine for this, uh, because I don't see any other way out of it. Yeah, I didn't know they didn't have a vaccine for it. I had just assumed that we hadn't, uh, you know, applied that into the flocks yet. I know I have a backyard. No, no, no. That's not true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your backyard chicken could possibly get it. Well, I was just going to say I have backyard chickens, and so a lot of people do anymore for, you know, a few eggs here and there. So if someone's uh, bird had this flu, would the chicken just obviously be, like, um, you know, sick? Now, they get obviously sick, and that's the USDA right now. Their, their way of dealing with this is to destroy the flocks that have it. And right. uh, you see, there's kind of two approaches to dealing with a disease. You know, can you stop it by destroying the flocks that have it, or does it get so uh, endemic that you can't? You know, now, of course, in the beginning with COVID, for example, uh, they tried to stop it. But now there's new variants. They're so contagious that everybody's going to get it. It's endemic now. And those are that's being transferred by by wild wild birds, right? Not not yeah, not person to. Yeah, is transferred by migratory birds, and some birds get it and get sick. I was reading somewhere that some snow geese were dropping out of the sky in Canada. Uh, and other birds get it and they spread it around, but they don't get sick. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's really really bad. Can I, can I transfer it from my little flock? I go in and handle my chickens or pick up the eggs or I'm cleaning out their coop and then I go over to my neighbor's flock and I'm in his pen and I'm, I'm cleaning out his, he's on vacation so I'm taking care of his birds. Could I transfer it accidentally over to his flock if I, if I wasn't careful? Yes, you certainly could. And this is where you need to do some biosecurity. Yeah, you definitely could transfer it to his flock. Yeah, that's that, why that, when that, I've visited farms, you know, they're really careful about your footwear and changing your footwear. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, uh, yeah, it, that that's one of the ways that it's spread is footwear. But there's also some evidence that it's airborne. Right. And, uh, and then that's going to make it more difficult to control. 
I don't know what's going to happen with Thanksgiving this year, Dr. Grandin, but I'm already being told, you know, we buy and sell at my company in Denver a lot of turkeys, and we're not getting turkey quotes for Thanksgiving because they're having to wait and see um, what the avian flu is going to do to their flocks that they would be putting down normally in the in the fall. So we'll have to see if it's if it's kind of nipped in the bud by then. But what would be your guess? Um, we don't have a vaccine for it, so it's probably still going to be a problem this year, right? Well, the other thing is we know that in some wild birds they carry it but don't get it. I mean, the other way you you deal with it, you can either find, make a vaccine for it, but let's say you don't have a vaccine for something, then you have to breed animals that don't get it. Right. And they would, they would probably be a little less productive because everything takes energy. It takes energy to grow a whole bunch of chicken meat. It takes energy to operate the immune function. And so if you cut back some on growth, then you can then the body put more energy into fighting off disease. You might just look what's going on with COVID right now. Um, uh, the latest variant is so contagious that it's impossible to get away from it. And if you're vaccinated, you're going to get breakthrough infections. We're going to have to just live with it. Yeah, that's what I've been reading, too. We're just going to have to live with it. And uh, and uh, yeah, so time will tell on that. So we just have uh, just another minute, Dr. Grannon. Would you tell us just maybe um, some... Just one last thing is like, what are, you, what are you working on now? And you're a professor up at Colorado State University, and we know a little bit about your work up there. But what the what, next 24 months out, anything you're, any projects you're working on that you can share with us? Well, um, I've worked on a lot of different things. So one of the things I'm getting interested in is uh, learning more about grazing because cattle has been attacked as an environmental wrecker. And if you raise cattle right on pasture, you can actually improve the land by using a grazing animal to improve land. And I'm right now working on a paper on reviewing a lot of literature on this. And uh, good ranchers can improve the environment. And the grazing animal created some of the best cropland that we have in the U.S. and in other parts of the world. And we need to be using the grazing animals, cattle, sheep, and goats, to improve land. Um, And they're kind of being wrongly uh, attacked as being environmental wreckers. Yeah, I've certainly seen that, especially the people throwing rocks at conventional ag with it or selling the plant-based products. And I'm nothing wrong with plant-based products, but when some of those companies say, well, you know, you're causing more global warming by eating beef than you are by driving your car, that's a little bit disingenuous. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of research by, by like I saw a documentary by uh, Alan Savory that showed how, how great cattle are for raising and this, you know, wasn't originally what he thought when he started his career, but they, he was convinced, you know, after what he saw, so... Well, that's absolutely right, and monocultures of soybeans do not improve the soil. Right. Well, with that, Dr. Grandin, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time, and uh, I hope you enjoy your summer. And I uh, just, uh, everyone, I would like you to pick up Dr. Grandin's new book. Tell us, and uh, in, in parting here, what's the name of the new book coming out? Well, the new book will be coming out in, um, in October, but you can pre-order now on Amazon is Visual Thinking by Temple Grandin. And then I've got other books like Temple Grandin's Guide to Working with Farm Animals. I've got Thinking in Pictures, my autobiography, and my animal behavior work. I've got Animals in Translation, where I describe visual thinking, how that helped me with animal behavior, and also Animals Make Us Human. Perfect. Great. Thank you, Dr. Grandin, for your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Food Chat today and our interview with Dr. Temple Grandin. Food Chat is all about growing food, harvesting food, processing food, but basically reconnecting you to food. And all summer long, we'll be interviewing farmers, ranchers, food processor, and others in the food industry. We're here every Wednesday 
from 12.30 to 1, and you can check any past episodes at gregorybloom.com. Views and opinions expressed on KLZ 560 are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Crawford Broadcasting, the station, management, employees, associates, or advertisers. KLZ 560 is a Crawford Broadcasting God and Country station.